0: "'Rise and have no fear.' And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, "'Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead.' And the disciples asked him, "'Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come?' He answered, "'Elijah does come, and he will restore all things.'" but i tell you that elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands then the disciples understood what he was speak- then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of john the baptist this is the word of the lord
1: Thank you and, uh, and well read. Um, this is an incredible passage. Uh, we, like I was just saying to the kids, we see something here about Jesus that should really um, shake us, that's, that's like putting on a pair of glasses for the first time and seeing him for who he truly is. Uh, and so we're going to pray now that uh, God would show us these things. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are here in our midst. And that your desire is to reveal something about yourself to us this morning. That we praise you as the God who loves to reveal who he is. So we pray that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, uh, open our hearts to receive what it is that you want to show us about yourself and your son this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've noticed something about Aussies and religion. I think that most Aussies would say that they've had some kind of spiritual experience. And it's worth actually asking, like your friends who you would assume have nothing to do with religion or anything spiritual, ask them the question, have you ever had what you would call a spiritual experience? I asked that to my barber this week, Scotty, um, and, uh, and Scotty thought about it for a moment, just asked, have you ever had a spiritual experience? man?" I know that's a weird question, but what do you think? And he goes, yeah, no, I, I reckon I have. And So he described a time where he went out into outback Australia. He was out sort of camping, as he likes to do, and he found this gully out the back, just, just where no one would ever be, this big gully. And he looked at it, just fresh with green, a little water, a river trailing through it, and he looked at it and just, it took his breath away. He said that, that it was like this, this physical experience of just, oh, but it was more than physical. He looked at it and went, wow, Yeah, this world that we live in. And as we pondered that together, sort of the, the vibe was, maybe there's something more out there. Maybe there's something beyond this physical world. If something like this can exist, it, it maybe points beyond. Uh, someone else I chatted to a while back, same question. And they said, well, once I was about to step out in the road, I was about to cross the road, I was at here at this corner, and just as I was about to step out in the road, I heard this voice yell in my ears, don't cross. So she stopped. And then out of nowhere, this car comes careening around the corner and you know blasts through exactly where she was just about to step. And so she turns around to thank the person who said, don't cross, and there was no one there. Right, it sounds like Ripley's Believe It or Not or something, doesn't it? It's just it's way out there. But, but you'd be surprised if you ask your friends this question, have you ever had a spiritual experience? I think actually a lot of Aussies have had some kind of experience that just they feel, whether it does or doesn't, but they feel that it points beyond the physical. It points beyond the ordinary world. Now, what they do with that is another question, right? Because it's not like these sort of, whether they are actual genuine experiences or not, but these spiritual-ish experiences, whether it's a vision or a dream or a strange sight or some weird miracle that happened to them, they can't make sense of it. They maybe go, well, there might be something out there, but it's not like it came with an instruction manual. You know, I can't understand what this is about. If there was a voice, whose voice was it? If there's something out there, what is out there? What was that thing actually about? What's the meaning of it? I don't know. And so, because they don't have this clear explanation of, of whatever might have happened, it just becomes an interesting story to them. Oh, yeah, sometimes I just talk about the time when I almost crossed the road, got hit by a car, and I was saved, and wow, cool. You know, It doesn't actually change their life in any way. So a lot of Aussies, I think, have had some sort of weird spiritual experience, but don't have any real clear meaning attached to it, and therefore it doesn't transform anything for them. However, today... In Matthew 17, Matthew records for us a different kind of spiritual experience. A few of Jesus' disciples encounter this thing that happens that's beyond the ordinary world. It's beyond the physical. It is supernatural. It is spiritual. But unlike the experiences that maybe a bunch of Aussies have, it comes with a clear explanation. It comes with clear meaning. And not only that, it comes with the expectation of change. Because there's clear meaning about this spiritual experience that the disciples witness, it must transform them. It must change their lives. And so today, we're going to see two things, a transfiguration and a transformation. The disciples are going to have this spiritual experience That centers on the person of Jesus it has clear meaning about the person of Jesus it's not just an interesting thing that happens for them that makes for a good dinner story sometime it actually reveals something about the nature of God in the person of Jesus Christ and while only three of the disciples are there to see it it also is an experience for us to witness through the words of Matthew. And perhaps, a bit like the Aussies that I've described, like my barber and the other person I talked to, you've had some kind of spiritual sense that there's something out there, but you don't know what that something is. Or, perhaps you've been a Christian for a while, and yet you you feel your experience of Christianity just feels very ordinary, very humdrum, you know, it's, it's just steady as she goes, and I feel like I need something more spiritual to sort of pep me up and, and give me more. Or maybe it is just that, like me, you just want to know God better. Whether the first, the second, or third, this passage will draw you to the answer to all of those yearnings. The yearning to know what's out there, the yearning for something more, the yearning to know God better, and the answer is the person of Jesus Christ and what's revealed in this passage. So let's start digging in. If you've got your Bible, Matthew 17, we're going to look at first the transfiguration and then a transformation. So just to set the scene, as I open up here, Matthew 17, verse 1. Matthew is the first of the four Gospels, so if you find the New Testament, you'll find Matthew. So six days earlier, Jesus had asked his disciples... Who do you say that I am? That's, uh, that's not clicking, Jacob. Um, there we go. Thank you. So Jesus had asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And do you remember what Peter said? What do you say? What do you say? Yeah, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's right. So this huge statement about who Jesus is, they've recognized this is the anointed one of God. This is the Savior. That God has sent it's a huge declaration it's a huge turning point in their understanding of Jesus and now Jesus is going to take a few of them aside and show them something even more about himself on the back of this declaration they've made you are the Christ now okay let me show you what that really means so he takes aside Peter and two of his other close followers James and John he takes these three aside He leads them up a mountain, far away from the crowds that are so often desperate to see Jesus and have him speak or have him heal. Takes them far away from all of that, up to the mountaintop. Now it's just him and them. And there, Jesus invites them to witness what Matthew calls a transfiguration. Take a look at verse 2 there. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now think about that word, transfiguration. I challenge you to use that word in a sentence that doesn't include the word Jesus. You know, good luck. <laughs> you won't be able to do it. It's a weird word, isn't it? It's almost like actually it has no meaning. What, what does it mean? What does it mean that someone's transfigured? Well, what we know at least is that it's different to being transformed. You know, like a werewolf is a transformation. It goes from man to wolf, right? Jesus isn't doing that. He's not a werewolf. He's not turning from human into something else. And we know that because the disciples recognize him still. They know it's Jesus. So it's still him. It's still a human, Jesus Christ, but he is adding something to their vision of him. What's he adding? Glory. He's adding glory because his face shines like the sun. I don't recommend that you ever look directly into the sun. I'm not a doctor, but it will go bad for you. It will ruin your vision. Here, Jesus' face is like that. Here's the Jesus that they've looked into the face of from just a couple of feet away, but now they can't stare at him. His face shines like the sun and his clothes shine as white as light. Now, if you were there, what would you be thinking about Jesus at this point? Here's this spiritual experience, okay? He's showing you something beyond the ordinary, beyond the physical, beyond the physicality of, of the, the world, but beyond the physicality of himself as well. What's he showing you? Certainly he's showing you that he's more than just a man, isn't he? He is a man, he's still Jesus Christ the human, but he's also showing he is more than just a man, more than just a teacher, more than just a wise moralist, right? Because I don't know about you, but I can't do what Jesus does here. It's not like any of us have a little dimmer switch on us that we can turn and then, oh, great, you know, face shining, clothes shining. We we can't do that. Who can do that? Only God. Only someone who actually has power over the physical world. Only God can himself do this. And so, for example, in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, you get these words. And here this is an echo of what Jesus is actually doing. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent." This is talking about God as the the transcendent creator of all things, the one with all power, stretches out the heavens like a tent. You are very great, clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light, with holiness, with splendor, with majesty. Literally, that's what Jesus is doing at the transfiguration. He's showing his disciples, I am this one. I am the one with all splendor and majesty, covered, clothed with light. Literally, his clothes are shining as white as light, pointing to the fact that he is God. Peter actually picks up on this later as he reflects back on this experience after Jesus' death and resurrection in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 to 18. He's actually talking about the transfiguration here. And we know that because he quotes about being on the holy mountain, as well as quotes uh, the words that, that God the Father speaks later, this is my beloved son. Uh, but listen what he says about Jesus. When he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he saying that Jesus received in that moment? Honor, glory from God the Father, because he is God the Son. He recognized in that very moment, as Jesus shone with light, this is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is now staring into the face of God the Son, the divine Son. More than just a teacher, more than just a wise man, more than just a man. But God a very God. And we see that truth expand as the experience plays out. In verse 3, behold, says Matthew, look, what do we see? We see Jesus talking with two celebrities, Moses and Elijah. And these guys were celebrities to the Jewish people. Uh, Moses, because he was the great prophet, the great lawgiver, the one who wrote the Ten Commandments. Imagine that claim to fame. Elijah, the great preacher in the desert, the one who silenced the prophets of Baal and courageously stood up for Yahweh, God. These are two of the great figures of the Old Testament, almost representing the law and the prophets. The problem being that they're both dead. They died hundreds of years ago. So how is it that now Jesus is talking with them? Well, in some way... Their spirits are here, talking with Jesus. God has the power to do this. Again, there's something beyond the physical world. If you're someone who believes that actually this life is all there is and, and this, all we can see is all there is, you're wrong. Here Jesus shows that actually there is more. There is life beyond the grave. Romans 14.9 says that Jesus died and returned to life, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. He hasn't died and returned to life just yet, but this is a foreshadowing of his power. Because one, one day, everyone will stand before Jesus, the Son of God, having been raised from death and need to give an account for their life. That day is coming, friends. This life is not all there is. But back to the moment at hand, Moses and Elijah have been raised in some spiritual form, not in that end time sort of form, but here just for a moment. And we don't know exactly what they look like. Only that the disciples recognize them somehow. And we don't know what they're talking about. It says there they're talking with Jesus. We don't know what they're talking about either. It'd be interesting to know, wouldn't it? But obviously that's not important. What's important is that they're there because there's significance to them being there. Remember, Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the great prophet, these giants of the Old Testament, they are here to play second fiddle. To Jesus. They are here to show that even these great celebrities that the Jewish people looked to for hundreds and hundreds of years weren't the end game. Their whole role was to point to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, much as the scriptures in both the law and the prophets of the Old Testament point to the coming of the Son of God. But I think there's also more than that happening here. Because it's not just that they point to the Son of God. It's that Jesus, standing there with Moses and Elijah in the middle, if you want, positions himself as the true and better Moses and the true and better Elijah. Do you know what I mean by that? Moses and Elijah did great things for God. But Jesus, being the Son of God, did far greater things. Things like what they did but far greater. For example, Elijah's claim to fame, like I referenced before, he silenced the prophets of Baal. So out in the wilderness, there was that scene where uh, he went up onto Mount Carmel along with the prophets of this this false god, Baal, that many people, even Israelites, believed in at the time. And there was a challenge that happened. You know this scene? There was this challenge between the two. So who's going to be the true God? Is it Yahweh, God? Uh, the, the God of the Israelites, or is it Baal? And there was this challenge. Uh, Elijah said, uh, put, a, put a, an offering on the, the altar there, and prophets of Baal, you pray, and if Baal comes and consumes the offering with fire, then great, we can know that Baal is a true God. And so all the prophets of Baal are there, and they're prostrating themselves, and they're praying and crying out, and the scriptures even say that they started to cut themselves, trying to get Baal's attention. And, uh, and, you know, Elijah's funny. He's like, oh, you know, maybe he just can't hear you. Maybe he's away on the toilet or something like that, right? He has this, this funny way of talking about it. But then, obviously, nothing happens. Baal is a false god. Then Elijah prays but once, and fire from heaven comes and consumes the offering. He's the true God, revealing himself in that moment. And Elijah, up on that mountain, saw evidence Of God's supremacy over all pretenders, all false claimants to his throne, light up in flames before him. But here, on a different mountaintop, the disciples see God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, ablaze with light before their eyes. Jesus, the true and better Elijah... Think about Moses. At one point, Moses took a few of his trusted followers up Mount Sinai. You can look at this in in Exodus chapter 24. He takes some of his followers up, much like Jesus did with just these few disciples. And Moses then goes to the very top alone. And you know what he asks the Lord to do? He says, show me your glory. Lord, show me who you are. Show me your glory. And God says, okay, but you have to hide behind a rock and then you'll just see my back. So he sees just the glimpse of who God really is, and then comes down the mountain, his face shining. But Jesus is the true and better Moses. How so? Well, both Moses and Jesus go up a mountain and have this experience of God's glory, right? But while Moses is the recipient of God's revelation, Jesus is the subject of God's revelation. Moses asks to see God's glory, but Jesus is God's glory, right? Moses sees, but Jesus is. So Jesus is the true and better Elijah, the true and better Moses. This is what the disciples see. They see Jesus for who he truly is, in his glorious significance, the one to whom all the Old Testament scriptures actually point, both in uh, prophecy and in its characters, like Moses and Elijah. Now pause for a moment on that. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you're a first century Israelite. You're familiar with all these things about Moses and Elijah and the Old Testament and all of that. And you see this happening. How would you respond? What would you do? Would you fall down in worship? Would you run away in terror? Here's how Peter responds in verse 4. He says, Lord, it's good that we're here. This is great. And, and you could take that in a couple of ways, right? Lord, it's good that we're here. Thank you. Thank you for, for including us. It's, I'm so glad that we're here. I actually don't think that's what Peter means, though. Practical Peter, always the problem solver, is saying, Lord, gee, it's a good thing that we're here. It's good that someone's here to solve this problem. What's the problem? The problem is, here's Jesus and a Moses and Elijah, and they're obviously going to stay for a while. And there's no tents. There's no roof over their head. They're going to stay here up on the mountaintop with the sun boring down on them. They're going to get a sunburn. And so Peter goes, I, I can help. I'll, I'll help make some tents. And, and great, you guys can stay here and then we can keep soaking up whatever's happening here. That's great, right? Classic Peter. Like in the in the one breath, he can say something amazing like you are the Christ. And then in the other, just says something totally stupid. right? That's what's happening here. I can solve this problem. Here we go. But while he's still speaking, you notice it says that? While he's still speaking, another voice cuts over the top of his. It's like, just shut up. (laughs) The voice of God, the Father, booming from the clouds. And look at what he says in verse 5. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You might recognize these words. These disciples certainly would have. They would have been repeated to them over and over and over again as the story of Jesus' baptism was told among them. These are the same words from Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is baptised. God again booms from the clouds and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why does he repeat them now? Why repeat these words? They already know it. I think because of what Peter said just six days earlier. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now God booms from the heaven saying, you got it, Peter. You're on the right track. This is my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, listen to Him. In fact, those three words there, listen to Him, are the only words that weren't said back at Jesus' baptism god the father adds them here you're on the right track guys you've got it this is the perfect son of god this is my beloved son the one who's never sinned the righteous one he is the fulfillment of all of your hopes of the old testament he is the true and better moses the true and better Elijah. truly my son truly god now listen to him here's what you've got to do listen and we all know the difference between hearing and listening don't we Yesterday in the car, um, Skye and I were on the way to my parents, and uh, it's just a short trip, but um, the Mariners game had already started, right? And so I put on the radio, and Skye said, oh, yeah, listen to the radio, listen to the Mariners game, and we'll go and watch it with your parents. That'll be great. Meanwhile, Skye's telling me what a great time she had that morning with, um, with some of the, the girls that she was with. She was hanging out with some friends. And I had this challenge of, do I listen to the Mariners game? Or do I, and I want to listen to my wife, actually. So I'm not making like some sort of chauvinist joke here. Like I do, I do want to listen to my wife, but the game is on. <laughs> and so I had to actually turn down the volume of the game because otherwise my ears just kept clinking to it, right? So I could have just been hearing my wife and not actually listening. Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Oh, that's great, honey. Uh huh, right? That's hearing. We all know the difference between hearing and listening. And in the scriptures, particularly in the book of Proverbs, Hearing is synonymous with obeying. Listening is synonymous with obeying. When we listen to God, we obey God. They're one and the same. To listen is to obey. If you don't obey, then you haven't listened. Right? So God the Father here says, listen to my son. Why? Because of who he is. Because of who the disciples are seeing him to be. The son of God. Of course I need to listen to him. Of course he needs to be shaping how I think and how I live, what my aspirations are, what my desires are, what my routines and habits are. Of course, he's the son of God. Listen to him. Again, because he's more than just a man. And here's the thing, if you're not a Christian, um, consider this. The disciples, Peter, James and John, who witnessed this transfiguration moment and, and heard this, this is my son, listen to him, they took that very seriously seriously. They didn't just go, well, that was a nice spiritual experience that'll have no change on me. No, these guys went to their death for the things they saw here about Jesus and the things that they would come to see about Jesus uh, as time went on. Uh, Peter was crucified. James was martyred in the, just a short time after Jesus was, uh, was r- resurrected. And, uh, and John was exiled to an island, Patmos, where he died. All three of these guys gave their lives attesting to the truth of this about Jesus. Now, how many people are going to go to their deaths for something they actually believe to be a scam? Something they believe to be a lie? Like, I tell you, if I'm up here scamming you guys every week and just, just telling you whatever to get, you know, what is a fairly small amount of money, right, <laughs> um, then, then I'm not going to give my life for If someone comes in here and puts a gun to my head, I'm not going to go, Well, uh, okay, like the jig's up, right? I'm out of here. No one's going to go to the death for something they believe to be a lie, but these men went to their death, meaning they believed it to be true. Take that very seriously. These disciples had a genuine spiritual experience that showed them Jesus is the Son of God. Not just in this moment, but actually beyond this moment too. He's the one through whom and for whom everything exists, clothed with majesty and splendor and honor. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And he is righteous, the beloved Son of God, worthy of being listened to, worthy, in fact, of being worshipped. And the question is, for both non-Christian and Christian alike, do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Do you see him, as it were, through the lenses of clarity like the glasses versus not wearing glasses do you actually see him or do you see some blurred vision that's not really true now it's easy to know whether you do or don't see jesus for who he truly is it's not actually a subjective question of whether you feel it or not it's about whether you're listening to him this is my beloved son listen to him If you see in your life that you are in fact listening to Jesus, then it's very likely that you do see him for who he truly is. If, on the other hand, this hasn't transformed you and isn't transforming you, it's not shaping you, then likely you haven't listened to Jesus and don't see him for who he truly is. Which brings us to our second point. Because first there's a transfiguration, then it's followed by a transformation. Now, not a transformation of Jesus. A transformation potentially Of the disciples and anyone who listens because now they have to wrestle with how this vision of Jesus actually shapes their lives and their view of reality now in verse 6 we see one way that Jesus this true vision of Jesus could shape their lives have a look at verse 6 here's one way that it could shape their lives and we have to decide whether this is how it should be or shouldn't be verse 6 When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. What's happening? They hear the voice of God speaking from the heavens. They see this vision of Jesus. They're terrified. They want to run away. They want to get away from whatever's happening here. Now, at one level, that's right, isn't it? We do see across the Scriptures that when people come face to face with God, they often fall down terrified. John, in the beginning of Revelation, does exactly that. The Israelites, sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai, hearing the booming voice of God from the clouds, much like this moment, do that as well. They say, we don't want to go up the mountain. God's there and he's terrifying. And again, this is right thinking, In a lot of ways. Because, I mean, it it does remind the disciples here in this moment of how far they fall short of this God, this holy God. They've sinned. They've missed the mark of obeying him. They haven't loved him as they should. They've got the right thinking. We are sinful. We We have fallen short of God. We aren't fit to stand in God's holy presence on our own. But even though it's right thinking... There's something here in the action that's not right. They're falling down terrified. They're full of terror. Now that's different to falling down in fearful worship. Think about how when people in the Gospels come to Jesus wanting healing, a lot of the time they fall before him desperately. They're not terrified. They're drawn to him. But they know their place. They know that he's the son of God and they, they're desperate for him to do something. And then he meets them there and lifts them up and does something for them a lot of the time. Or think about... Um, uh, yeah, no, that's an example. So those who, to, who come to him and they're desperate. Here, they're falling before him in terror. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 7. This is how we know that they've got maybe right thinking but not right action verse 7 he says when he comes to them he touches them a reassuring touch and he says rise and have no fear don't be terrified guys that's not the right response here you now he comes he touches he speaks and each of those things coming touching speaking is exactly what someone needs when they're in a state of existential terror That is the fear of life and death itself. Is what's happening for these guys. And I read a story this week about a a former CEO. Have you heard of Max Dupree before? Former CEO of a large furniture company. Right? He's passed on. Uh, He was a Christian, and this is a story about his his granddaughter Zoe. Now, um, Zoe was born severely premature, one pound seven ounces. Um, I don't really speak pounds sterling. But um, I think that's small, right? That's small for a baby. (laughs) One pound, seven ounces. And Max and and the family were told that she wouldn't live longer than three days. Um, Zoe's father had also just abandoned the family at her birth. So Max was invited by the nursing staff and, and his daughter to essentially come in as a surrogate father in that experience of Zoe being born. She'd been abandoned. Talk about existential terror. Being born into a world in which you're unlikely to survive without a father around. Horrible thing for poor little Zoe. Here's what the nurse said that Max should do when he comes into the room. The nurse said, while you're caressing her, you should tell her over and over how much you love her. Because she has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. Obviously, Zoe couldn't understand the words. But Max comes to this little girl who understands nothing of this world that she's born into and is unlikely to survive in. And he comes with a loving touch and loving truth. Jesus comes to his terrified disciples. Who, in a sense, have just been born into a world that they don't have a place in. A place where they see God for who he is. Existential terror. And what does Jesus do? He comes to them with a loving, reassuring touch, pat on the shoulder, a hand under their chin, perhaps. And he brings them loving truth. You don't need to be afraid. It's okay for you to be here. We could even interpret, I love you, there. He says, rise up, have no fear. Because after all, was God threatening them? Was God booming from the cloud with a threat? No. (laughs) He was booming from the cloud saying, guys, you're on the right track. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He was giving them good news. This is the one actually who would go and give his life because God so loves the world. He gives his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's Jesus, the one who would give his life and rise again for these very disciples, the ones who are now terrified of him. But God is bringing good news, so they don't need to be terrified. Now, this is a big opportunity for change in these disciples, right? They're learning that through Jesus and Jesus alone, they don't need to be terrified of God's presence. They can fearfully worship him, but they don't need to be terrified. They don't need to be like their ancestors back at Mount Sinai who fell down before the mountain, refusing to hear the voice of God refusing to go to be with God because they were too terrified. No. They're learning that they can experience God's grace through Jesus Christ. Not on their own standing, not on anything they've done, not because they've earned the ability to stand before God, but Jesus, who bridges the gap between the booming voice of God and their own sinfulness. He is the one through whom they can receive the love, grace, mercy, patience of God. And Jesus here, with touch and loving words, gives the invitation to cast their terror away. And Jesus can do that because he's more than just a teacher. You getting that? He's more than just a teacher. He actually has the power to transform the status of someone standing before God. None of us can do that. Only Jesus can. Now that's The first transformation we see here. I want to quickly give you one more. For disciples that listen to Jesus and trust him, they can put terror over God's judgment aside and instead they can stand in the reassurance of his love. There's the first thing. But there's also something else here. That as the disciples open their eyes, they see Jesus return to normal, right? Have a look at it there in, uh, what is it, verse 8? When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, is that good news or bad news? Right, the experience is over. Oh, bummer. But actually, no, they they now see Jesus with new eyes. Right, they see him and he just looks humdrum again. Ordinary, just an ordinary bloke. The Prophet Isaiah even says that uh, about the, the coming Messiah, there's nothing in his appearance that attracts people to him. Right, so he just looks like an ordinary bloke. But now they know he's more than an ordinary bloke they know it and they've experienced it they know that he's human and more and we would say human and divine and that's what leads john one of the disciples who were there that day to write these words in his gospel the word that is jesus became flesh and we saw jesus right he dwells among us and we've seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now hear what he's saying there. Yeah, we saw him in the flesh. He was a real human who dwelt among us. ordinary bloke. But we also saw something more. The transfiguration showed them that. But really, the, the disciples began to see that in all of Jesus' life, didn't they? Not just in this one moment. And they ultimately see it in his death and his resurrection. The glory of God, full of grace, full of truth. He's saying we saw it in Jesus. That's a radical transformation. They have the ability to now see who Jesus truly is. Now that's something that still grows across the gospel, as we know. Uh, When Jesus rises from the dead, these same disciples are doubting that actually he really did. They've still got a lot to learn. But the next step has now been unveiled to them. Now compare that with other people at the time, like the Pharisees, right? Religious experts, religious leaders, but they don't get it. They don't see Jesus this way. They see Jesus as a threat. They look at him, the ordinary human, humdrum, ordinary-looking bloke, and they go, he's a threat. This isn't the Son of God. This is a pretender. Compare that also with some of the crowds who come. Here's how Jesus describes some of these crowds in Matthew 13, 13. He says, speaking to him in parables, why? Why? Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Seeing, they do not see. What's that mean? They see Jesus, they see him in the flesh, but they don't really see him. You know what I'm saying? They don't see who he truly is. It's like they've got the blurry glasses on. They haven't been given eyes to see yet who he truly is. As a result, they miss out. They miss out. They miss out on God coming to them, full of grace, full of truth, telling them the good news, welcoming them as friends who don't need to be terrified. What a sad thing to miss out on. I hope no one misses out on that who's here on this room. Even the disciples actually almost miss out on this because look what they go on to talk about just quickly after this spiritual experience. So verse 9, they're coming down the mountain. Jesus commands them not to tell anyone about this experience, probably because it'll be misunderstood until it's in the context of his resurrection, right? So he says, don't tell anyone yet. But the disciples are taking this moment as they're coming down the mountain to sort of thrash out what happened. And they aren't thinking about what it showed them about Jesus. That's the irony. They've just been shown this incredible thing, but they they aren't thinking what this showed us about Jesus. Who are they thinking about? Verse 10. Elijah, right? One of the celebrities. The disciples asked Jesus, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, according to to Jewish thinking, um, Elijah was supposed to come back before the last days happened, right? If you want to chase it out, Malachi uh, chapter 4 verses 5 to 6 talks about this. It's right. Elijah would come back before the last days began, Right? Um, And then he would restore all things. That's what it says in Malachi. So Elijah would return and then the new age would begin. The restoring of all things would begin. So the disciples are going, well, we just saw Elijah standing there with you, Jesus. And tell us more about Elijah. Is he coming or is he not? Now, they're missing the point. Thank goodness it's not me in Jesus' shoes there because I'd be just getting short of patience, I think, with them at this point. They've seen incredible things about Jesus. All I can talk about is Elijah. But Jesus patiently corrects them. Yes, he says, Elijah does come to restore all things. You've got your thinking about that verse from Malachi correct. Well done. But the scriptures didn't mean the literal man Elijah that you just saw. They don't mean him per se. They mean someone like Elijah, right? And the disciples realize who that is. If you look down at verse 13, the penny drops for them. Someone like Elijah who would preach in the wilderness and proclaim the coming of a new age, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. If you've been doing the the Bible reading plan, you've read Mark 1, you see John the Baptist uh, introduced there as the one who, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist pointing to Jesus, the one who comes to bring the new age, to bring the restoration of all things, that after he's died and risen again, he's going to return. We're looking forward to that now, where God will restore all things. And those who trust him will have a place in that restored new creation forever, eternal life, okay? Elijah, that is John the Baptist, comes to announce this is happening, guys. John the Baptist points to Jesus as the beginning of that. But then Jesus goes to the real punchline in verse 12. Also, so also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. This is the punchline. Because how did people treat John the Baptist when he was here on earth? Not well, (laughs) Arrested him, killed him. He suffered at the hands of sinners. So also the Son of Man will suffer. He's saying, well, let's bring it back to the real meaning of this transfiguration experience. God wants to show that Jesus is the Christ, just as Peter said a couple of weeks ago. And the Christ is going to suffer which is what Peter debated a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember that? Far be it from you, Lord. God forbid, you know, the irony of saying that to God. God forbid that you should suffer. That's what he said. But suffer he must. He will suffer at the hands of sinners, and on behalf of sinners, he'll be arrested, mistreated, crucified, killed. And it might sound counterintuitive, but this is actually the only way for all things to be restored. The only way for God's glorious new creation to come about. Every person on this earth, myself and yourself included, has rejected God and therefore stands under his just judgment. We have a reason to be terrified of God. We have a reason. But through Jesus' suffering and death in our place, he takes our sin upon himself, the judgment we deserve upon himself. He dies and rises again and he takes away our reason to be terrified. That for those who trust in Jesus and trust in the promise to be restored into God's restored new creation, we have nothing to fear. This is what Jesus does for us. This is very, very good news, and it only comes through the suffering Son of Man, the true Son of God. Now, the disciples had to learn this because it cut against everything they learned about or knew about the Christ. The Christ can't suffer, the Son of God can't suffer. But yes, he must. You guys have got it wrong. And your thinking needs to be transformed. He has to suffer to save his people. So this transfiguration experience leads them towards a transformation. Their thinking about Jesus needs to be transformed. And so the case for us as well. In our minds, in our hearts, he needs to move from teacher and example to Christ and suffering saviour. Now, without that, we'll just treat Jesus as an optional extra in our lives, won't we? If he's just a good teacher, you can take his words or leave them. If he's just a good example, well, you can follow him when you want, not when it's uh, inconvenient for you, right? But if he is the Christ, the Son of God and our suffering saviour, then we best heed God's words. Listen to him. Listen to him so that we know where we stand with God. That through trusting Jesus, we are right with God and have no reason to be terrified. Listen to Him so that our lives would be shaped by this awesome, majestic Son of God who has the right to rule. That's a transformation. And the question is how can that happen? How can that transformation happen? What do we have to do? Do we need a spiritual experience like what the disciples had up on that mountain? Is experiencing something like the transfiguration a necessary step towards transformation? Well, it's worth keeping in mind that only three of the disciples saw the transfiguration, right? So it can't be a necessary step if only three of them saw it. So that can't be the answer. The transfiguration was a gracious gift, not a necessity for us. But here's the answer, I think. Finish on this. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Paul says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is the spirit just look at that word beholding seeing seeing the glory of the lord we are being transformed seeing the glory of who jesus truly is the awesome son of god the suffering son of man when we see him and keep seeing him for who he truly is, we are transformed. To see is to be transformed. To keep seeing is to keep being transformed. And it's not based on something we do. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What's it all mean? It means we don't need a special spiritual experience for transformation to happen. Instead, we need God's spiritual power for this to happen. The power to open our eyes, regenerate our minds, wake up our hearts to the reality of Jesus Christ. And that's true whether you're going from not being a Christian to being a Christian, right? It doesn't come about by how smart we are, how good we are, how perceptive we are comes about when God opens our eyes to behold him for who he is we don't need to experience what the disciples experienced but we do need to see what the disciples saw about Jesus that's true as well for continuing to trust and follow him we need to keep seeing Jesus for who he truly is we need to keep encountering him as we're immersed in the pages and the story of scripture in the intimacy of prayer and in life with his people And so I want us to finish now by praying some words. Lord, show me your glory in your Son. Lord, open my eyes again to see Jesus for who he truly is. Lord, open my ears to listen to him. Lord, move my hands to obey him. Lord, draw my mind and heart and body and life to fall before him, not in fear, but in trust and worship. Let's pray that together now. Lord, we do pray these words. Lord, show us your glory in your Son. Yeah, feel free to repeat after me if you like. Lord, open our eyes again to see Jesus. Lord, open our ears to listen to him. Lord, move our hands to obey him. And Lord, I pray on behalf of all of us, draw my mind and heart and body and life to fall before Jesus, not in fear, but in trust and worship again and again and again, this day and onwards. In Jesus' name, amen.